You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. Pat McCabe is the best user of an exclamation mark uh, I've ever encountered in the English language. Um, that's now that all the biographical stuff is out of the way. That's all I've got left. Um, <laughs> you, like you know, exclamation marks are kind of weird when you isolate them, aren't they? Like it's like a kind of a dot that is either an unblinking eye <laughs> or an open mouth, and it's got this weird stark line, not like repelling. They're repelling each other, and it, there's all this weirdness about them. There's hilarity, yes. Surprise, yes. But there's a kind of a mania to it. Um, and I think that Pat uses that better than anyone else. That's all I had left on Pat. And Nicole, <laughs> I think you've got nearly all of Nicole, except I wanted to talk about Nicole's work as um, kind of a series of ghost stories. Um, I learned the word hauntology about um, a month ago. Um, and it's uh, <laughs> something I wanted to tie, I wanted to say that I think both of these writers write these um, kind of ghost stories. And Nicole's um, hauntology is kind of a, a hauntology of place, these really kind of closed off spaces that seem to project the mood. The characters are either disembodied or disillusioned or being ignored um, or alienated. Um, but then I, the thing I wanted to say about Nicole was she's the best writer of a sentence. Uh, there's a lot of Irish writers have come out in the last decade and there's a kind of, you get this glib question about golden generation every second event. Um, but I think Nicole is the best writer of a sentence in the last decade, that's published in the last decade. And that's what gives those stories that these, what I think are kind of weird ghost stories, a vital pulse. Um, you just can't, once you get into the rhythm of a Nicole Flattery paragraph, you're done for, you're gonna read this as long as you have. Um, and oh, and I, I had a line saying she makes me want to be as a kind of a contemporary of Nicole. She makes me very jealous, um, and someone who wants to be a better writer. Um, but one of the things that I think they both do, and this is where I get to ask a question now, um, is I think they both are immersed in a kind of disruptive spirit. Um, all of Pat's books, uh, Nicole's first book. Um, and and um, her non-fiction, um, which has been published in places like um, the Dublin Review, the Sting and Fly, um, they have this a disruptive spirit that works against the culture we think we know. Um, in Heartland, for example, Heartland is, I was kind of trying to say to Pat, I thought it was like a Quentin Tarantino, it was like a, a Quentin Tarantino movie, the novel um, that a Quentin Tarantino movie has yet so far failed to be. Um, it's set in the backwoods of, um, I don't know, some county that's never named, Glasson County. Like well, there is a Glasson, you know. Is there a Glasson? Mm, there is okay. a Glasson County, West Mead, but it's an imaginative spin on that. It's a Glasson County, like an American county, like, you know, wherever, it's Carolina a, County, or wherever. And it's kind, of a, it's kind of a dreamscape, right? Oh, totally, yeah. It's a kind of a dreamscape, yeah. and that kind of goes back to the... It goes back to, it disrupts everything we think. So we think we're in one place or we think we're with one set of characters and it kind of keeps changing on us. And everything is, like, Pat has a book called The Stray Sod Country. 
Um, and the stray sod, is that like a familiar term? Does everyone know what the stray sod is? Sometimes you might find yourself in Ireland, you might walk down the wrong lane, or you might go through an unholy gate, um, and you are in the stray sod. And where, what that means is you're not in Ireland anymore, but you're kind of in Ireland. It could be like a Tuatha type thing. I'm not really sure, to be honest, of the folklore. Um, maybe Pat will enlighten us in a minute. But both of these books are in that weird dreamscape where you are in a place that's familiar. There's Nicola's garages, hotel rooms, small Irish towns, Pat has small Irish towns, Pat has pubs, but they're com utterly weird um, and eerie. And I wanted to ask you both about that disruptive spirit. Do you, when you're, you probably don't think about it when you're writing the work, but when, you're, when the work is done and you're looking back at it, do you feel like you're part writing against a particular culture or against the mainstream, or are you aware of subcultures, or is it just what you're, where you're coming from? Well, I remember when I started writing seriously first, Danny, like I wrote a book, a really dreadful book, actually, called Music on Clinton Street. It's a novel set in a boarding school, and um, it's a very traditional social realist kind of book. And at that time, the predominant figures in Irish literature would have been social realists, uh, very good ones, like John McGahern, Mary Lavin, um, you know, Frank O'Connor. And I was writing in that, you know, the kind of prelude to the music in Clint Street, they always seemed to be somebody arriving home from England on a train to bury their brother and drinking a whole <laughs> load of Guinness, you know, and uh, go, sorry for your trouble. And I was writing loads of this stuff, you know. And at the same time, I was at all these parties, like smoking cannabis and falling around the place. And there was, there was a bit of a disjunction going on, you know. And I was writing these things, and I began to realize, it's just, you know, John McGarren can do it, Frank O'Connor can do it, but I can't do it. So it's kind of that has happened to me all the way along, where, where you give up in despair, and you think you're never going to write again. And something else happens then. I didn't realize at that time that what that is, is kind of developing your style without realizing it. It's a kind of a subconscious thing. But what you're also doing without realizing it is tracking the kind of erratic journey of the country in which you happen to land. And if you, if you think of Ireland's kind of history from 1922 on, it's very disruptive. It's, it's, it's very uncertain in a way that, say, the UK isn't. Like, if you can stand on a street in the suburbs of London and sense a long line of plain trees in a society that's very steady. But Ireland, very, very rarely you get that feeling, you know? And just when you think it's going to be like other places, where the novel, for example, as a form, developed for that reason, then you have a crash in 2008, and you stand back at this society that was so busy telling the world how modern it was, starts crying like babies, like running around the place, blaming everybody else. And I thought, well, you know, this is very kind of strange. And everything about Ireland is kind of strange in many ways. Mm. And uh, I don't say that that's necessarily a bad thing. There are many great things about it, like you see kind of the eruption of a new wave of traditional folk music with Lancome and Lise O'Neill, and they're tapping into something again that yeah, is, yeah. could only come from a country that has its roots in something ancient and is at war with modernity and in love with modernity and puzzled by modernity in a way. And to get back to your thing about the stray sod country, that was a metaphor of existential dread. You know, 
you think you know something, and you don't know it. But to beyond, it gets beyond your own country, where the very act of trying to name the world in which you find yourself is very complicated. We used to have religion that did that. You knew what it was. That's gone too. You know, classical mythology was a thing that kind of gave meaning to people's lives. That's equally gone. So you kind of think that might have, in the words of Philip French, with the collapse or the kind of movement away from those kind of monoliths of certainty. You got the growth with, say, filmmakers like Peter Bogdanovich, like where they used to kind of make movies like Targets, where you take a bit of everything and bang it in there. That was the precursor to the world which we have now. So in my world, you have the kind of rural kind of track. Then you land in the Colts book, which has a kind of relationship to it, but it's taking it somewhere completely different, like what I'm saying, than my sad so social realist book. If it had been something like this, you know, which seems very fully formed, if you don't mind me saying so, very kind of uh, visionary almost at times. But I think it's because it found its style uh, much earlier than I did. Yeah. Nicole, do you want to say something about that, Nicole? Because I don't want to talk about your book for you, even though I have loads of praise for it. Like, don't do, were, it. You, were, you, were you aware, like when you were putting these stories together, you are writing this kind of, <clears throat> both of you, I think, kind of like turn it up to 11 in those various aspects. You're writing this really, really strange, lost kind of place. And actually, that well, I remember reading your first stories, thinking, oh my God, I've accessed a level of truth about Ireland that's not available mm -hmm. anywhere else. Like, yeah. were you aware of what you were doing? Is it something, who were you talking to? Like, who, who were you engaged with when you were doing that in your, in your imagination? It's interesting. Um, I think what you were saying about being disruptive, I never consider myself like going against anything. Like I wonder like what I would be fighting against. Were you just against. Going, were you just yeah, for like was, your own thing? Like I, I think I'm very aware of my own, like you were saying there, you're aware of what you can't do. I'm, I'm aware of my own limitations as a writer. Like I can't do social realism either. I've tried. I can't do like romance. I can't, like there's certain things I can't do. And then I was like, I, after a period of kind of writing and things, I was like, I can do this. So that's is what I, I leaned into like quite a, quite a bit. So did you try and, f and not get on well with a couple of the things? Like, is there, is there, is there a bad Nicole Flattery story oh, somewhere? Oh, yeah. There's that loads. We can't <laughs> and, who, and who were you? So I remember my... Uh, it's funny that you said John McGahern, and we were talking about a generational gaps and things. I was... My first couple of stories, I was just trying to rewrite John McGahern stories mm -hmm. from um, Nightlines. I was just trying to do my own version. But of course, that's no harm Nightlines. to try and do that. Uh, but, yeah, but and then, then it's only when... I think it was through... I ended up writing a whole novel that was maybe a bit... Bit John McGahern and a bit Dermot Healy, but not good enough to be Dermot Healy, and not not true enough to be Dermot Healy, and it got rejected everywhere. And it was only then mm. when I it was rejection for me that, boom! All of a sudden I was like, I'm just I'm never going to get published. I'll just do what I like. Someone said to me, write the book you want to a read. A terribly important lesson to learn, though, for everybody. Yeah. 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 Don't you think? Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, a much more important writer than me, or perhaps anyone, is William Faulkner, who said that you know that he didn't find his style until his book, I think Sanctuary maybe it was, was rejected for the thousandth time. And he said he felt a door closing between him and the world of publishers. And it gave him a style because it set him free. You have to learn not to care. Yeah, yeah. Or you have to find the people that are, like, I, I think when I was first writing stories, I was trying to do the same as you, like write these really Irish, like, well, I suppose like Kevin Barry, 
but like not as good as Kevin Barry. And then like I found writers like Anne Enright, like her first collection of stories, The Portable Virgin. Yeah. And then the best writer of senses in Ireland, uh, Keith Ridgway. Yeah, so, okay, yeah. He's not yeah. my generation, that's why I, <laughs> I, I did yeah. say the decade or whatever. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, so that and that's who that's you're that's who you're mimicking. Or yeah, yeah. mimicking might be I'm not sure if that's a, a cool word or not, yeah. but so how did you get from a farmyard in John McGahorn's Leitrim to the early king in the kitty in the yellow? I don't mind me saying. Uh, so um, someone said to me, write the book you want to read. And I said, what's the book I want to read? I want to read T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, but set in Ireland. And I think I was just, to be honest, I'm obsessed with the film Blade Runner. And I think I just started thinking, I just want to write a kind of a Blade Runner. And they were, just, they were two separate thoughts. Um, and eventually I started setting, I'd be writing kind of, I had a short story about a policeman in the barracks or whatever, and I said, I'll take that back now and I'll rehash that and I'll put it, I'll make it in an Ireland where it rains all the time and I'll have some like um, strange digital cameras or whatever in it and make it a bit weird. Um, and that kind of was the start for me and then I, I just started cutting loose. And I think a big one in terms of, and I had given up on the idea of publishing at this point, I was just doing it for fun which is very embarrassing and kind of painful, but it's also really liberating um, when you go back to just doing it for fun. Um, and then City of Bohan came out, and I thought, oh, you could actually do it. That gave me permission to go mad and, and think I could still publish, so it kind of revived the ambition or whatever. Um, I think Kevin Barry is an interesting one, because I was thinking of him as, like, Kevin Barry wouldn't exist, I don't think, without mm. Patrick McCabe. Well, none um, of us exist without somebody else. I mean, the, the thing about it is, you know, Blade Runner succeeds because the pulse speed of real humanity is in Deckard. Mm -hmm. You can put all the machines you like around and drones and it's very prescient and it looks, the texture is magnificent. But what really is beautiful about uh, Blade Runner is the relationship between the female android and Deckard and the fact that they're never going to get it together. Mm. And it's always the unattainable, always the fl flickering flame that's just out of reach. And ultimately, for me, that's the kind of, sort of, almost a religious kind of thing. Why is it like that? Why mm. does it always have to be like that? And it doesn't matter what the style is, really. You know, I mean, the McGarn or the, the Stanley Kubrick or... A cold Friday or anything, that has to be in there somewhere. Do you know, mm -hmm. that somehow that accessible feel for the ordinary human being to empathise in a way. Because the fundamentals never change. Even though we're living in a time of extraordinary flux, you know, I, I wonder about this so much, but my little grandson had a birthday party there, his fourth birthday party. And Various different generations were there, but somebody brought this staffy terrier, and like it grabbed everybody's hat and tore my wife's hat to bits. You know, and then the kids were beating a panata. You know what that is? One of these things. <laughs> but my grandson said, "Dad, you gotta come. There's a wild goose chase. This is wild." And we went upstairs, <laughs> and the dog is making shit of everything in the house. And I looked at and said, if you strip everything else away, the play that's going on there between all the generations, this could have happened, I was thinking to myself, with a kid and a dog and the family's reaction could have happened in the Middle Ages if you stripped everything else away. So, you know, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but when I, when I, when, when I was reading both the books, 
you know, which I love, both of them. The early king and show them a good time. The thing is, while the style really is evocative of the period we're living in, of uncertainty and everything, somehow there's a desperate loneliness at the heart of both of them. Mm. And that's the thing that must always be there for me, the truth of the human feeling. And it's, and it's, there, it's there in all your books, but I just put down Hartland the other day, and these guys, these guys, seven guys in a bar, and they're all there to, to commit murder, the murder of one person. But the loneliness seeping out of these middle-aged guys is just so sad. And it's a, very, it's a funny book, it's an exciting book, but it's, you're just listening to these guys all looking back through their lives drunkenly saying, like, what, that dance, I, we won that dance. Like, and it, it does come back to think, like, yeah, I guess you're right, it does come back to, no matter the style, it comes well, back to... it was kind of both, like, when I wrote that, like, nobody liked it, you know? And uh, I thought, there comes a time in your, your life where you've got to say, well, I don't really care at this stage of my life who likes anything. And they said, well, why do you want to do this? I said, because I want to write a book that has the truth of dialogue, you know, that it rattles along like a kind of incantatory psalm, but it's true to its place, which is, again, of a vanishing world now. And seeing as this is a Bialtonic kind of thing, like the generation that I come from, speech in country places has a different ring to it, has a different rhythm to it. It was almost like I wanted to mark that, maybe like a swan song to it almost, but to kind of do it in a modernist form, you know, which is like a Tarantino movie. Well, I, I was thinking of Tarantino, but I was also thinking of Godot. Yeah, for sure, Because yeah. it's 300-odd pages, and you're, everyone's waiting for Tony Begley to get yeah, there. Because when Tony well, see, that frustrated a lot of people. There's yeah, a lot of questions not answered in this thing. And this was, this was put to me, like, kind of uh, aggressively. And I said, well, that was entirely intentional. I said, what's the point in that? And I said, well, what is the point, then, in writing a, a beautiful song called Ode to Billy Joe? Now, Ode to Billy Joe was a southern gothic, steamy ballad where something happens, but you don't know what it is. There's something thrown off a bridge. Billy Joe never had a lick of sense. Pass the biscuits, please. That's kind of like Pinter. If you're going to have to answer everything, then let's forget it. Because just as soon as you've answered it, somebody else has got another explanation for it. We don't know. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing about the stress. Oh, every religion will look at it differently. But ultimately, science can't explain it, religion can't explain it. And that is the kind of cold sweat that I still wake up with. It's, the, it's the mystery, isn't yeah, it? I'm it's, so, yeah. it's why we. It's why we, I, I think. Well, one of the questions I had written down was like, what, for both of you, where does art come from? That might be an answer that it's. Same place as religion, really. Looking at the mystery or whatever. Yeah, religion is full of mysteries, you know. Discredited religions, even full of what is what does it mean? And you have to trust. You have to, faith is a very important thing. I mean, artists have faith. Why would you do it otherwise? Mm. Sit in a room all day. Can, can I just check? Can everyone hear Pat? Because I, I can see your microphone's falling off. But I'd say everyone can That's hear. That's a rock star. Can't <laughs> yeah, yeah, grand. It's a rock star move. <laughs> At which literary festival did you learn that trick? <laughs> um, yeah, art is worship. I remember reading a John McGarren thing about that, art is worship. He was like saying, this is my prayer. Like, I Ooh. sit down and I, I He was very I strong on that McGarren. Yeah, yeah, and it's definitely, it's true. Um, here's a question I wanted to ask before we run away with ourselves. Can you, can you, looking back, can you remember, Nicole and Pat, the very first, either maybe a piece of art or a story that I heard that, 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 where you went, oh, wow. Like you were blown away by something, even as as children, or do you remember, or the first, you know, the first story that 
the first thing you wrote it, the first thing you no, saw? No, no, that like you, as a ch like, the very first thing I ever remember is um, my mum making a daffodil and telling me a story where the daffodil came from. I realised years later it was just made up or whatever. That's very sweet. But it was beautiful. Yeah. Like, can you remember the first thing, the first engagement with... <laughs> well, I remember watching Dirty Dancing and thinking that was yeah, really yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's affected me ever since. <laughs> 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 but I can't remember... I can remember the first time like, I, I was thinking about like how I, I want... I remember the first feeling of wanting to write and like having a diary when I was like 10, 11, 12 and writing poetry and it's very embarrassing and stuff like I remember that feeling more than the first thing that affected me, yeah. What was the feeling? That I just wanted to write everything down. I wanted to record it and it, particularly my impressions of it. That felt very, very important. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what about you, Pat? Used to be a little school book called the Melophon Reader. Oh, you wouldn't remember it, but uh, the, the, there was a story in it. It was called The Fabulous Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And this guy had a frock coat and three cornered hat, and he was going to get on his trusty steed. And he rode from Moscow to Leningrad, and it snowed all night. And he tied his bridle of his horse to what we thought was a fence post in the middle of the snow. And when he woke up in the morning, his horse was gone, and he heard a whinny. And he looked up and he saw his horse was hanging from the steeple of the church. I thought, wow, something else. And I started writing all these stories like that uh, had things like that in it. like that. And I think it's kind of, for, to be brutally honest, this kind of urge to recreate the world in some fashion that might be manageable is down to some terrible disappointment that you can't really name. And I don't even like to go there because... My kind of feeling was, imagine if you could remanage the world the way he did. And he shot his, the horse down, uh, the bridle snapped, and he hopped up on his horse and rode off to Moscow. And that was the first kind of indication that I had that magic might enable you to stop being unhappy. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, oh, you were getting the, <laughs> you're getting the mic on running repairs. I'll tell you, the, I, my, the thing I, I got asked this question recently and I, I couldn't remember, my, like we didn't have a bookish household. To stop um, being unhappy. My, well, no, we were, there was plenty of unhappiness, but probably because we didn't, we didn't have a bookish household. We didn't, did we even have, I don't even think we had a TV for, for the first couple of years. My earliest memories are of no TV, of only the radio. But uh, the thing that got me, my, I realised at a certain age my parents were liars. They were brilliant liars. Like, they're constantly lying to me all the time. They were lying to each other. There was all these lies yeah. going on. I was like, you can just make stuff up yeah. and people will listen to it. And I remember then trying to, because I had a, a brother younger than me, practicing lies on him, like, you know. <laughs> and I don't think, I don't think everyone, because I didn't want to be a writer. Until I was probably 17, 18, I didn't actually seriously think I want to try and write a book. But I love telling fibs. Do you know who I heard saying exactly the same thing? James Joyce. No, <laughs> no, no. Jeremy Kyle. Ken Dodd. Ken Dodd. <laughs> no kidding. It was on a famous programme called Face to Face that Channel 4 used to do. He used to have really, really important intellectuals and so on. But one with Jeremy Isaacs. Very famous kind of late night programme. And Ken Dodd... He's gone now, but I'm sure he's so much part of the culture, people will know who he is. You know, he was one of the most famous comics ever in Britain. And the camera closed up on him and they asked, why do you tell jokes, the interviewer? Jeremy Isaac said, why? 
strange thing kind of happened. There was all this, oh, the diddy man, all this stuff beforehand. Kind of caught his eyes. He said, because I grew up in Liverpool, he said, you know, and uh, I was very happy with my family and everything and used to run around the slag heaps. And I'd invent all these pyramids and amazing Aztec temples and I'd stand at the top of the slag heap and say, I'd go back and tell my parents everything that had happened and then maybe they'd love me. God. Now, this sounds really <laughs> heavy, but what I'm saying is, this guy was loved by everybody. Yeah, and yeah. And he was happy. And it's getting back to this weird ache. Like, all the evidence was that he was loved more than most, but he didn't believe it. Yeah, That's yeah. the thing. I'm just trying to say the illogical nature of this impulse of that he could go back and put on this little show for his parents, who did love him anyway, and think this would do it, whatever this missing piece was. I wonder... Uh, let's try for another one of those. And I remember... Uh, did you like writing essays in school? Loved it. Did yeah. You, yeah? Uh, was it a joy for you that, if, that the teacher would go, Nicole, I want you to read your essay out today because yeah. yeah. you did your, your, home, <laughs> your homework was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so glory comes into it. That was yeah. cool. Glory does come into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And attention. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It'd be a lie to say can otherwise. I, can I go back to your like, strange statement <laughs> my parents you? aren't here so it's, <laughs> I guess I, that's fine when did you first realise like did you ever catch them out in a lie or did you ever just, uh, just my parents didn't get on well they were always like they get on well now but they didn't yeah. get on well then they were always like and because you're like, like we were saying earlier about how bright kids are where's this oh I put it there and you're going no she didn't and then you say oh, it's not there where is it I put it there I, 100% I put it there this morning you're like she didn't put it there this morning. She took me out. Like, you're just spot... Because you're the halfway... They think you're, like... They think you're kind of a, a house plant or something. Yeah, like, yeah. That, you're, that, you don't, that you don't hear anything. But you're just there going, ah, uh, <laughs> what's going on here? And I see... I see my... my I have a six-year-old niece and a four-year-old niece. And I see them doing it, too. Like, they're just... They take joy in telling you that, that that's not what happened. Like, my sister said, thanks a million for the, um, the plant, the flowers... Uh, they're still on the table. They're fresh as anything. I mean, they're the flowers you put in the bin two days ago. <laughs> you know. Mm. Um, we before time runs away, and I said, I think it's only fair that we let people hear you read. Um, will you give us a bit of reading, Pat? Are we all reading them? Yeah. I won't read, but you two read. Why aren't you reading? <laughs> then pay me enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tea time with Google Boy. There's definitely no doubt about it. Times, they have certainly changed since the internet, that's for sure. With very few people bothering with the old wireless now, these go-ahead times, when you can even get people to print you a gun, a long way surely from the squat, polished old wooden box in the corner with that little gold bead as it twinges and where you can hear the long wheeze of your father before he wakes. Turn it up there, he says in a dream. And you and me can wander in the land of capillary wires in that wet battery world that looks like a tiny Dan Dare city. Turn it up like a good lad and let me have me snooze. Double trouble.
the Kay sisters, three in harmony, Jimmy Clitheroe, the Clitheroe kid, Ted Loon, Lancashire's long laugh, Peter Sinclair, Cock of the North, Margot Henderson, sing something simple, the Cliff Adams singers. Oh, man alive, but them's great programs, he murmured. Tune the dial, our boy, and find me some more. Oh, do you know the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man? Do you know the Muffin Man who lives in Drury Lane? Then who arrives? Only Google Boy at the window. Shh, says Da. Shh, who's that? How strange he seems outside the window as he smiles in at Dan Dare. Dan Dare in his shiny bowl helmet. Did you really believe that you were the future, he seems to say. As I open the door and help me, says Da. Son, can, 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 can you help me? He's at peace now, said Google Boy. That's why I came. I'd love a cup of tea, he said sitting down where my father had been. I'll give you everything he never knew. Things of which he could only dream, your dad, he said. So turn it up, your little busker. Will you, chappy? Turn it up for Buchel on Google. Sing something simple. As cares go by, sing something simple, just you and I. Now you're happy, now that you've left all that behind. Good heavens, Dan Dare, what's wrong? Why, I do believe you're crying in behind your helmet. I thought that you'd look more like a robot, I said. I thought that you'd have wing mirrors. Wing mirrors instead of ears. Oh no, he said. Oh no, said Google Boy. You see, I'm just like you. I'm just the very same as you, which is why I know every single little thing you need. How you think and how you drink how you eat, how you think, how you eat and how you drink. Say, okay, Google. Okay, Google. Say, okay, Google. Okay, Google. Man, that's a grand cup of tea, said the Googlers. <laughs> you see, I said, he's just like us. As far away, Da called across a ravine at something he knew we'd never find again. As Google Boy sipped his tea and smiled, out of nowhere growing the loveliest little set 
of spotlessly polished wing mirrors right there on the side of his head. I can do anything, he said and laughed. It's a grand cup of tea, he said to me then. And all the better for it when you know it'll last forever. And all the better for it when you know it'll last forever. And all the better for it when you know it'll last forever. And all the better for it when you know it's going to last forever. Sing something simple, just you and I. We invite you to sing something simple, not only listening but joining in, we hope, with all these songs you know so well. Sing something simple, just you and I. Thank you all for tuning in this evening. We hope you have enjoyed Tea Time with Google Boy. Good night, listeners. Good night. Forever. I'm a bit worried about the dad. <laughs> Is he going to get back in the house? Huh? Is the dad going to get back in the house? Fuck knows. <laughs> <laughs> Crikey. Do you want to do more questions on average? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because that, uh, okay, I wanted to ask you a question, Pat, about the increasing presence of the supernatural in your work. Um, the Nobo Daddy shows up, a kind of a, 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 another worldly creature from William Blake in, is it the Straysod country, I think? And then yeah. there's the Fetch. And then all of a sudden, these bones start appearing in, in Mr. Bones, and then there's Mr. Bonnie um, appears, and in Heartland, Mr. Bonnie is this spooky figure. But I kind of want to change my question now, because now it's Google Boy is the spooky figure at the window coming into the house. The last words David Bowie ever wrote were, on his computer, this is verifiable, Google is Illuminati. And David Bowie was giving up music for the web and the net. He was very prescient boy, a very smart man. And I don't have any views about this, but, you know, it's just another anxiety. And I think that is very much present in this book here. Show me a good, um, a good time, because there's a whole new set of anxieties, you know. It's all the same anxiety anyway, but I remember myself and my wife last year, we were in Pittsburgh, and it was a really hard winter, you know. There was nothing being said, and we were kind of one of, one of these zones. And she's... She said, I think someone's hacking into my account. And we don't know anything about that stuff, PayPal or... And all it really is, you know, is yet another metaphor for something that you're not quite sure what it is. We were kind of hadn't seen anybody. We were away from the family. I was teaching in the university. We were lonely, really. But if you don't really know how to name it, you find something that might give it a locus. And now it's Google and gang, you know, that, except this time it might be real. I don't know. Yeah, but it really yeah. is. It is. It is that spatial, continental, you know, tininess in the landscape, which your book is full of, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah. And when, when I wrote to uh, Nicole about her book, I was trying to think. Well, I just devoured it. I just made total sense to me. And to be perfectly honest, 
I don't like to categorise things, whether you know it's uh, whether social realism or against. Uh, it just it made sense to me. In many ways, it's it's the language of the moment anyway. So it's social realist in that sense. You know, as the language gallops ahead to keep to keep pace with all these extraordinary technological developments that are happening and the things. I mean, the prevalence of mental health issues and free-floating anxiety, stuff that didn't exist 20 years ago, not in my, my memory anyway. These are all very real things. And uh, I just don't quite have the language because I think I'm older to kind of name them, but I think this book does. Mm. But that's not to say it, isn't, it hasn't been there in some other form before, mm. that the, um, the, the movies that I suggested the book was similar to was the beginning of this kind of thing, like the conversation and the parallax view and a whole series, Clute particularly, where you have this really interesting woman played by Jane Fonda, you know, who's certainly not kind of a put-upon female at all, but she's also vulnerable, you know, as we all are. And there's a really kind of mature adult relationship between her and the Donald Sutherland figure of these two vulnerable figures, they're never going to get together because that seems to be the problem of the modern age. People mm. are getting on fine, but they're not getting on fine. And that, you know, the, it's a contractual thing almost in a way that was inconceivable for yeah. our generation and the generations before. Because I'm married 44 years, like, I mean, it's a totally different kind yeah. of thing. And like, while you know, people might say, well, how do you do that? There are benefits to all these things, as there are to the other thing. No, nothing is set in stone. But anyway, whether there are benefits or not, that's the way it is. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Everything probably starts off with a benefit, otherwise it wouldn't proceed. But then it, it comes weird and ubiquitous and creepy. Um, yeah. The, I'm, I'm thinking of the emails in, a, in abortion. Mm. Story. That's there's, right. yeah. there's this... Abortion love story is, and again, I don't know if this was what it, this is what it was for me. This incredible identity crisis, that we're, and, and no one really gets on in it. Mm -hmm. um, but they're sustained through. And Natasha starts getting these emails that seem like plays from her life. Ooh. Where did that like? Did you, were you conscious of what? Did you sit down and go, "I'm going to write something about how people can't communicate but want to get on, want to be found, want to be seen, and not seen"? Um, I don't know. I think that's. Um when you, yeah, the kind of, in the films you mentioned, um, the kind of like paranoid feeling, which I mm. think is like prevalent probably now that the feeling that like, not that I feel it all the time, but like, no, of course that not. you're being watched in some kind of yeah, way. You yeah, mm. you know, like, and that's just creeping more It was more only beginning with those movies, yeah. but you know, that was a, those movies were warnings. Yeah. Now it's the reality, CCTV, 24 hour coverage. Mm. That has changed people's views and there. And it's in every part of your life now. It might, like, That's right. previously it might be in journeys or when people are in exactly. external spaces. Exactly. Now it's in... Ooh. But, like, it's also, like, how it's affecting our behaviour daily. Like, if you feel like you're being watched, then it's constantly a performance. And then so much of our lives have become this kind of performative thing, you know? Like, Instagram or Twitter. And then what does that actually do to you as a human being? Like, how, how does that, like, interact... Like, your interactions and your... Your soul, for want of a better word. You have a, I can't remember the story now, but you, one of your characters starts crying. Actually, I think it's Natasha. She starts crying and she says, I don't know if the tears were real or fake. Ooh. Yeah. She gone so far into that kind of performative thing. Yeah. Where yeah. They, yeah, go on. I was probably thinking about that like a little, like I think about that quite a bit, but I studied theatre, so I, like all the performance like feeds into a lot of my work anyway. But yeah, I think it's something to think about in our culture. Just when I 
scroll through Twitter or Instagram, I'm like, what of this is real? And what of this is completely fake and empty? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But also it's linked, though, to things like uh, Strindberg and the theatre of cruelty, you mm -hmm. know, men and women roaring at each other, nobody hearing what they're saying, you know, and things colliding. That part of it is what gives it real texture and body while it's located in the analgic Pakula paranoid zone. It, that's why it's really meaty, because those things, again, don't change. You said this, I said that. Virginia Woolf kind of territory. Mm -hmm. yeah, but particularly yeah. Strindberg, I think. Yeah, actually, there, there was someone I wanted to recommend to you earlier. Uh, I don't know if in Dublin, Jennifer Walsh is someone widely known, a composer, but I was mad to bring her up because I was just, I've been listening to, I, I sent you on the Ashdock, yeah, this kind of um, avant-garde. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of a, a website that um, a website that documents all the forgotten avant-garde Irish artists. But once you've looked on it and mooched around, click on the disclaimer to see the truth about the website. Um, but she has a load of compositions that I've been un uncovering. Girls being interviewed and, and, and talking about different things. And in the background, there's this weird it sounds like interference at first, but then you, you kind of hear it's, it's screaming and gasping the longer you listen. You kind of realize that underneath all our normal conversations, mm -hmm. there is, a, I feel it anyway, in, in the more time I spend on the internet and I've kind of promised myself I'm going, mm. I'm going off at this year, I'm going off social media this year, this is the year. Um, there's this existential dread yeah. lying, like Google boy is at the window. It genuinely feels like that. And it might not be like, the, probably the, the, the worst manifest for me is like, did an email go into my spam and I haven't seen it and there's someone I've not replied to. It's like real superficial stuff, mm. you know what I mean? Rather mm. than I don't think my, I wouldn't care if my identity was stolen, I don't think. There's nothing for anyone to take. 13, these things are really getting in there, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I can't imagine what that must be like, that ping, 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 if you're under pressure. Did you, have you read The Skin of Anxiety, that Kevin Barry essay in the Dumb Review? Yeah. Oh, it's very good. Um, yeah. You wrote it a couple of years ago, I think. I was just reread it recently. It's just basically like that constant anxious feeling, and that like you know every time you check your emails, this is the time you're going to get an email that changes your life. Oh yeah. And it's that kind of like hopefulness yeah. and dread. Yeah. <laughs> before to break that up, um, before we move on from talking about abortion, I'm sorry. Do you want to read? Because I know you said you were going yes. to read from it. Do you want to give us a reading? I will read a short bit because I like sitting on the couch. <laughs> can she read sitting on the couch? She probably yeah, can. I can yeah, I can read sitting. It yeah, feels yeah, like yeah. I'm they, out of touch. People can hear you, yeah. <laughs> okay. When Natasha first entered college at 18, a boy called Patrick, stick thin, raised Catholic, had attached himself to her. He was her first boyfriend. They were a good pairing because she was a strange person pretending to be a normal person, and he was a normal, well-raised person desperately pretending to be strange. She knew when he left, they left college, he would get a job in a bank, develop financial ideas. He was the sole link to a life Natasha felt she could never fully be part of. Already she su suspected love was over for her. How could you make another person happy? How could they make you happy? During the day, she wandered the campus with Patrick, avoiding her classes, the buildings looming over them, the city outside the walls, doing whatever it did in its daylight hours. And he filled her in on the comings and goings of the place. She worried, despite all preventative measures being taken, self-control barriers being rightfully installed, her daily exercise regime producing slick, metallic sweat that she had inherited her mother's weak and crazy personality. Her mind felt like a long trailer of carrying a number of cars. If one car went, they'd all go. 
scatter across the motorway caused carnage. She would miss her sanity when it went. She wanted to spend her weekends like the other students, underground, undernourished, blacking out, being infinitely surprised by her own youth and beauty, but she didn't allow herself. In her, her entire college career, she hadn't had one bit of fun and was immensely proud of the fact. Fun was forbidden to her. She might enjoy it too much and slip into the endless pursuit of it. At least she was charming, she assured herself, but charm was thin compensation for a life of constant lurking terror. Her relationship with Patrick had become queasier and queasier. In September, she had fallen pregnant. She had asked him to steal money from his parents to pay for the abortion. Steal money from your father, he said. I'm not a thief. Why are you this way, Patrick? She asked in genuine bafflement. The night before she traveled, Patrick, counting out the cash, looked like he might cry. It's okay if you want to cry, he said to Natasha. I don't, she replied. I'm not sure if you know this, but I had a very tough childhood and had to, had to overcome obstacles far greater than this to seal my place in the elite college. You don't go to any of your classes. I have a disorder, she said. Anyway, you're only upset because you think you're supposed to be. You don't care about me. He didn't correct her. It was as if he couldn't procure an abortion and lie in the same week. It would have to be one or the other. In the clinic, she sat in the waiting room, trying to figure out how she was supposed to feel, wondering who to blame, nurturing her anger. It all happened in a flash. Although she was alone, she didn't feel alone. She felt like a part of a large pantomime dragon made up of other women, a long line of them moving and swaying invisibly through the city. When she returned, she and Patrick stayed together. It was around then she stopped attending college full-time and started using the cotton wool more liberally. At the weekends, when Patrick went out to clubs, she stayed in his family home and cooked him hearty lasagnas. She bought a special apron. She wanted to look proper, like a girl who'd never steal, never have an abortion. The apron was a plastic material, every stain wiped right off. She bought it in the luxury department store. On Saturday nights, she watched television in the good living room with his parents, who loved her like an orphan. Patrick arrived home on the edge of Sunday evenings, looking strange, dirty, with that shame he carried in his shoulders whenever he had been cheating on her. Whoever he had been sleeping with, Natasha still got an almighty thrill watching him eat those lasagnas. As she layered the ingredients, the red of the mints reminded her of her father's bloody mouth, huge and open at their kitchen table. To calm herself, she often locked herself in the bathroom and counted the perfumes, emerging extremely fragrant. She didn't eat any of the lasagnas, and if Patrick started telling her about all the fun he had at the clubs, what a glorious good time it all was, she just stood up and left the room. Afterwards, they had sex tentatively, lightly, as, ne as if neither of them wanted to be involved anymore. On one of their last weekends together, Patrick, a psychology student, said that God had appeared to him in a dream and told him the only real addiction Natasha had inherited from her mother was her addiction to pain. Maybe God should have diagnosed me before you got me pregnant, she said. Finally, in the college coffee shop, their relationship was coming to a close. She slid a cold lasagna across the table as a symbol of their time together. I don't like you anymore, she announced. You don't like anything, Natasha. It was true. One day as a challenge, she set herself the task of writing down everything she didn't like. She filled an entire copybook with her tiny, hateful handwriting. She included the elite college at least 45 times. She included the concept of fun 10 times. She included Patrick 18 times. Goodbye, Patrick. Patrick tapped his fingers meditatively across his nose, subsuming this rejection into his grand personal narrative within a few short seconds and stood up. He didn't say goodbye. When he was safely out of sight, Natasha took out the ornate cigarette case in which she kept her cotton wool. 
She had to be careful she didn't hear any opinions in the coffee shop. She crammed some in her ears and began to cry. Normally she didn't understand her fellow students' need for melancholy, their high emotional register, shrieking music and complete lack of composure, like they were auditioning daily for some drama she wanted nothing to do with. She had to keep her emotions quiet and fixed in place or her whole face would break apart. But this was the end of her first romance and she was determined to enjoy it. She wept loudly, not knowing herself if they were fake or real tears. She attracted a lot of attention from nearby tables. Her father's false teeth appeared to her that night, their cold porcelain chattering in the silver of her dreams. For once she could hear what they said, Natasha, don't lose your mind. It is such a marvellous, harrowing and brilliantly weird story. Thank you. Can you remember <laughs> or tell us where it came from, the first idea you had for it, to write about it? or um, Where did it come from? Well, I, I kind of started to write about that first character, that Natasha character, and then I wrote a bit of it and then I got distracted and I started writing something else. And then I went back to it. I kept going back to it and it kept getting longer and longer. Then it took me ages, you know, like it ended up being the longest story in the book and it took me so long and I was getting frustrated with it. And then, yeah, like I couldn't tell you where exactly the idea came from. Was, was, the, was the play in it from the start? Did no. you know you were going to write no. a story? With, when did the play come in? Late on? Yeah, later when I was about like three quarters way through it. And I didn't want to write the play. And then I, w I was kind of working with someone, and they were like, you have to write the play. I was like, oh, <laughs> do I? But you write it as performed. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then but it was fun then, when I, I kind of had that freedom to, to do that. I think I wanted to. I just wanted someone to tell me that I had to do it. The freedom <laughs> came from them. Yeah, I feel, I feel like I, 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 mm. I wanted to. That's very interesting. Yeah. Mm. Uh, we've all uh, produced work with plays in it. Mm. Call Me the Breeze. Well, Call Me the Breeze has film treatments in it. Stray South Country has uh, the priest puts on. What's the name of the play? Tenebrae. God knows. Yeah, yeah. Puts yeah. on a play. Um, did you? Do you have any? Did you have? Any, well, you needed a bit of encouragement, Nicole. Pat, do you just love mish? Because all of your work is very innovative. It's mishmash, and you have editorials by or prefaces by fake London publishers, and there's one book that has its own blurbs. Ah, yeah, Tell I don't know some of that any good, really. Um, some of them are better than others, you know. Um, but is that kind of playfulness part of your process or mode of... Irresponsibility, yeah. Irresponsibility. Yeah, totally, yeah. Where does that come Does it come from just wanting to be playful? Does it come from, like Nicole said, kind I, I of running know. out? I don't know. I was reading, I often wondered about that, this Irish personality thing. I was reading V.S. Uh, Pritchett. He is a young journalist in 1923, and he's, his book on Dublin is quite extraordinary because he's got one of those English minds that... It's very analytical, but it's not encumbered by any notion of patronisation or imperialist kind of residue or anything like that. It's a very honest, clinical, Norman mind. And he said that uh, his experiences in small towns particularly, but actually in Dublin City as well, that the alacrity, the, the suddenness with which people moved from torpor to recklessness, he had never quite seen it anywhere else. <laughs> And, uh, One stagger. I think that's true <laughs> still, actually. Certainly true of my generation. Now, I couldn't really speak for younger people. Do you but think that's true of our generation, Nicole? Mm. 
I think we. I, I think. I think we. We. We get um, reckless. Might not be the word, but we. We lose it very quickly. I lose control. You might have quickly. experienced the torpor. The kind of torpor that I'm talking about comes from a period from the 30s on when there was absolutely no opportunity in Ireland. Yeah, that people would get up late in the day because there's no point of getting up because there simply isn't anything to do. Your sons and daughters are gone emigrating. What, what was left then is the middle class who have the jobs like the ESB and teaching and the guards. The rest can just go whistle basically. So if you wonder, I remember when I went to Australia first, a woman said to me, she could not believe how tatty Irish villages were and that nobody bothered to seem to do it. And that's totally different now, of course, but in the 70s they were. You see the photographs. You know, after Saturday night, nobody had ever bothered cleaning up. And I think what that really was, was the tenant mentality, you know? That really came to an end, I think, around the 80s and 90s, when people started coming back and people started having children, that you're not rearing your children for export. So mm. there is a point in cleaning up. But the torpor I'm talking about belongs okay, to a time yeah, yeah. when, what's the point? So you know that that's not right. So recklessness can come out of that sense of self-loathing. It can come out of all sorts of things. But there's also a kind of a wild outlaw imagination, which is kind of beautiful, you know? So mm. there's a whole lot of things going on. And uh, I mean, Joyce was asked one time about being Irish. Well, how did he feel about it? He said, I regret it for the temperament it has given me. And by which I think he meant his father, like he'd been drinking everything in sight and they were just tumbling down the social ladder, right, left and centre. And yet, if you look at the famous Frank Toohey portrait of John Stanislaus Joyce and you look at the eye, there's a kind of a, a blazing outlaw intensity that's very attractive. And Joyce had that. Yeah. So it's a two-edged sword, you know what I mean? It is. Well, that's one of the things... Um, one of the things that you kind of, I, I think we all come from relatively similar sized places, like 1,500, 2,000 people. I yeah. Know, did you grow well, up in Kinnegad? I'm one bigger than that now. But you're from Kinnegad originally. Kinnegad, yeah. Oh, that's all right. Then we're back to where <laughs> you, you, you upgraded. You upgraded to Mullingar. But I think we're all from smaller places. And there are those characters in those places, to Frank Stanislaus Joyce's kind of stern people, or just mm. very charismatic people in well, general. Well, you have to remember, like, in those years, people couldn't go to university. So you had an awful lot of people who were stuck at home who were very bright people. And, you know, dissolved it a lot of the time in alcohol because of the lack of opportunity. I knew many people like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that has changed now. You don't meet. In fact, I was thinking of writing to somebody if there was a kind of a minister for alcoholics or something, I would write to them and say that I'm deeply depressed by the quality of Barfly in the last 10 or 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It true. simply has, you know, dropped a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm, getting, um, I'm getting the signal that we're going to go to the audience for the last few minutes. Do you guys have any questions? <laughs> yes, there's a hand up here. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of Jody. I'm thinking of Jody Kane. You spend 300 pages thinking, is Jody Kane going to get out of this? Um, is that? 
Actually, what is the actual question? Is the question that we read to we we read to escape? Insofar as there's a question, um, you know, isn't it just to really to say, is, is it true that that the fact that you cannot escape means that that's that's where the that's where the fodder is mm -hmm. for you to write? I read something um, recently on this by Elizabeth Hardwick. She has an essay kind of about this, um, just about how the writer is like constantly thinking about escape, maybe their personal life or flight in some kind of way, but it is the boundaries that are the, the more interesting thing. Ah, yeah. so they're, they're, they're in their personal life or their yeah. social situation they're trying. I, I was thinking of, as soon as I get serious about writing something, how am I going to write my way out? <laughs> how am I going to write this to a, to a, a satisfactory conclusion? Um, God, well, I that's the tyranny of the narrative, isn't it? You know, everyone's talking about the golden age of TV, and I'm beginning to get a bit suspicious about all this. <laughs> you know, because every time I watch Netflix now, I'm beginning to think, are these things written by algorithms? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah they look... You know, there's, I'm really getting suspicious of it, mm. you know. And as soon as you hear all this golden age about anything, mm. it's the golden age of hoobries, maybe. You know, like... Uh, yeah. They, they wanted to wrap up in 48 minutes every episode so that everybody will binge. And it works, there's no doubt about it. It's magnificently done. But it's not sincere. Mm -hmm. You know, in the way that David Lynch is sincere or, you know, any of the great directors or writers, it's not sincere in the same way. And actually, we were talking about the, the most recent season of Twin Peaks, and that's, he escapes all the boundaries of what's formulaic about everything else. And he just says, I'm going to have... And that's why he's the great narrative genius of the 21st century, because he eschews it. Yeah, yeah. I think. And probably what I think I was thinking of it when you said that about the scream, that there's just this like piercing scream behind yeah. everything. And he ends with a, a scream. He ends with a yeah. piercing scream, yeah. Yeah. And probably actually as a writer, maybe that's one of the hardest things to escape is that if you're not like I've I kind of opened with the idea that these two are writing against the mainstream. So that there aren't there aren't many books like these two brilliant books. There just aren't everyone else is writing differently. That that's a really hard thing to do as a writer because you're less likely to get published. Yeah. You're less likely sell. to get reviewed. Um, and that, that, that's a choice, right? That's a career mm -hmm. choice. Mm. Um, yes? All right, in terms of the, uh, like the utility of the, the story, like uh, the function of the poem or the, 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 the novel, should it be something transgressive and subversive or... You know, what's it supposed to be doing in the culture? Well, I don't think it, it has to be transgressive, that's for sure. There's no, you know, obligation on any author to be transgressive. In fact, there are so many taboos that have been broken since I started um, writing, you know, and for which our generation might be held responsible. If you think, for example, in the 60s, the Oz trial, which our generation embraced as a great leap forward, well, that led immediately almost after the trial, to page three girls. And very, very dubious material appearing. Stuff that now would put you in prison. This was being read by hippies as the clarion call of a new generation. So the word transgressive, in the, which we all championed at that time, you know, it's a hell of a different story looking at it now when you see the consequences of these things. So my, my view of it is something like kind of Ulysses, which is a powerfully human book which is really, really on the side of some kind of, 
kind of connection between people of all creeds and all shapes and sizes and why it was so magnificently democratic in a, in a time when fiction really, you know, particularly when you're dealing with small countries on the outpost of empire, didn't get a look in that way. So I would I sort of think, from my, my point of view with Joyce, whatever he says about fiction generally, I chime mm. with. Mm. It's like what you were, you were saying about Netflix there. I just think like a sincerity, you know, like there's like you believe the person who you're reading whatever is sincere. That's what I would look yeah, for yeah, because you you're know. being sold so much stuff on a daily basis. The idea of someone not selling you something is quite nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because like someone like Hank Williams or even Doris Day now could be transgressive because they have faith and beauty and you know honesty and impossibly unattainable things to say it's a magic fairy story that and I a lack of irony maybe a lack of irony I think sincerity is a novelty that could be a debate for an hour on its own <laughs> I, yeah. I really think it's the curse of the age yeah, yeah I really yeah. do I'm sick to the back teeth of it yeah uh, but David Foster Wallace said something very similar I remember yeah yeah He's, he said that he he uh, growing up starting writing he obsessed with um, all these avant-gardists and things, and he realised at a certain point he still he still wrote towards that style, but he realised at a certain point that none of them had anything sincere to say. That irony was like a, a caged bird, kind yes. of. Yes. Um, and he said that at, at a certain point you have to put your heart on it, oh, I think so. into it. At a certain yeah. point, you when have you hear to. Hank Williams singing in that wailey voice, did you ever see a robin weep? I mean, it takes guts to write that stuff. Yeah. It does. In a and child's that, hand. Have you ever seen his handwriting? No. Like a little copybook, child's hand. Beautiful. You know, so no amount of uh, irony or Latin scholarship will make up for that, I think, in my view. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's the, the best I could come up with, really, in terms of what it's supposed to do. I mean, it's a broad church could do anything, but I would certainly aim for that, and maybe even simplicity. Yeah. Yes? Um, just because it's come up so much, uh, the influence of kind of films and TV on your work, I've come up against a lot of writers kind of rejecting the idea that film and TV could be an influence on literature. So do you have any kind of opinions on the interplay between literature and other media, and especially Nicole, because we haven't actually heard that much from any kind of opinions you might have on intertextuality or any kind of films that have influenced you? Yeah. Um I don't know why people would reject that idea. <laughs> um, I'm really influenced by by film, um, definitely. And like I would think, I would think of certain filmmakers before I would think of writers. Is that terrible to say? Um, but um, certainly, when I was writing a boys and love story, I was thinking a little of uh, Whitstuman. Do you know the last days of disco? Any of those films? Damsels in distress. Anyway, I was thinking of him and that kind of stagey kind of dialogue. Um, obviously, David Lynch, um, it's a terrible, embarrassing thing where I won't be able to think of anyone else is going to happen to me now. <laughs> well, but you're also very interested in Warhol, for example. Yes, Warhol, um, yeah. I wasn't thinking of him, though. Like, that was kind of afterwards. That came after yeah, I was thinking of oh, right, okay. like the conversation. Yeah, the conversation, mm. yeah, yeah. Um, certainly, mm. a lot of those uh, 70s kind of films. Mm. Mm. I, th I think it's, um, it's a natural thing to be influenced by film and TV. You, you grow up watching, like I imagine the films I watched when I was 16 or 17 have influenced me and in embarrassing kind of films like Dirty Dancing that I wouldn't want to admit or no respectable writer would, <laughs> would want to admit, but they still have become part of your imagination and you can't deny that. Of course not. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think mm. I think those people are nuts. Like yeah. my my book wouldn't exist without Tom Waits. Like for a fact, listening to Rain Dogs over and over again, thinking I want to make a book that had that kind of moves like this, that kind of has this kind of huskiness in it, this weirdness in it, um, this unruliness in the streets. Definitely not. Yeah, yeah. Um, we definitely have time for one more, maybe two more. Does it, did you get enough there, or do you want do you want more recommendations? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, good. Okay, good. And music, and music. Have any of you seen the recent work of David Ireland? David? David Ireland. The playwright? Yeah. Um, I think I've no. saw something by him years ago, but not recently. I haven't seen it. No, I've heard great reports of both of those players, though. Yeah, I was just curious, had you, especially yourself, Pat, being an Ulster man? Mm. But no. <laughs> no, no, I just haven't seen it. I mean, I do wonder sometimes about theatre because, um, I don't know, I mean, I don't really, I don't, every time I go to a play and I say, they don't really, that's not, they're not doing that right, that's not really them at all, they're really looking <laughs> wrong. And I can't get it out of my head, really, and I know that's kind of ridiculous, like, at this stage in my life, but I don't have that problem with movies. But now, I don't know, I think it might be the proliferation of di digital imagery mm. and the sophistication and the speed. And this guy comes clunking on and says, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, he's not saying that. So <laughs> he's just an actor. Yeah, I'm sorry, but it's kind of Yeah, true. we were, I was yeah. kind of saying it earlier, I think it's, it must be the hardest form, acting and probably writing for theatre must be nigh on impossible because it's the hardest mode for but suspension. It's really difficult now for a theatre piece to kind of acclaim you know, space in the culture of Game of Thrones and, you know, and the Netflix thing, because you're really up against it, you know. I mean, the sophistication and the speed with which people's minds move now. Mm -hmm. And mm. I know that from my children, tracking them along when they came, reared in The Simpsons, you know, and the speed with which they pick up on references. I don't know if theatre has kept pace with it. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. That's just an eccentric view of it. I mean, I'm sure... There have been productions of The Crucible I've seen that just blew my, my mind, you know, recently. But modern players I don't really go to much, no. But Brian Mallon said the Eh? Brian Mallon? Brian Mallon? Yeah. Yes. I'm just saying, the Yeah, I mean, Brian was magnificent in it, you know. But uh, I just felt, you know, I just thought that the, the audience wasn't engaging the same way as I thought they might. And maybe that's just my imagination, I don't know. But I, I found having to explain to people afterwards in a way that they didn't seem to have to used to, that they didn't quite buy into it the way I thought they might. Last question, a quick one. Your creative process, um, when you've finished your book and you've given birth to it and it's released into the world, um, do you begin a new project straight away? Do you have a breathing space? Uh, do you go through a grieving process having actually released your idea? Um, that's basically it. How long do you leave between projects <laughs> starting your next You're project? right in the middle of it, Nicole. Do you want to tell okay, us how you're getting middle? on? I wouldn't yeah, say that, yeah. Danny. You're in labour. <laughs> <laughs> you're in publication labour. How's it going? Um, well, it's okay. Um, I'm writing something new, yes, but it is, it is difficult and... Uh, obviously, like Pat will be able to answer this. It's my first book, so 
all these kind of feelings are new and yeah, the, the uh, finishing the book is fine. One, it's one thing, but then the publication process is a whole other other thing that you kind of have to deal with. That you understand that as well, you know. Mm -hmm. That it, it's almost more challenging than writing the book. <laughs> so it's yeah. the bit you don't have that much interest in, isn't it? Yeah, I, I find, and for me, anyways, the bit that I found most fun was trying to get the idea, trying to get it down. You know, this perfect idea up here. You're mm -hmm. trying to do it justice. And then you get the valid, like the best bit is probably like you get the deal or whatever, you know yeah, yeah. it's what's going to happen, mm -hmm. but like the funnest bit. And then oh, this kind of, the, the doing, doing events is fun, mm -hmm. but um, not, yeah, it, it takes away from work, working on the next mm -hmm. thing. And it? talking about it is. And talking about it is. Yeah. yeah. Good. <laughs> it's good. Here we are. <laughs> Only another three hours to go. <laughs> What are you working on at the moment, Pat? Well, I was going to ask you, I do this thing that nobody seems to do, longhand, you know? I, I longhand. write longhand. I yeah, 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 yeah. I'm very interested longhand. in that yeah. because I thought that had stopped. Well, it, I think it has stopped yeah. for the majority of people, but mm. my mind can't keep, like, I need to write at the pace that I can think mm. and that well, they're, exactly. they're matched that's, better. That's, that's yeah, I can't type directly into yeah, screen. Well, that's interesting. kind of reassured to hear that. I thought all these young people were just beating out one after another. <laughs> Barely looking <laughs> at the screen. Every time another genius has appeared, another rising star. I thought, what the first? There's some kind of program that they've got. Because I just fill up the house with it's all like these. It's like the new spell check. It's long, novel writing. Longhand pages. Uh, you know, maybe a hundred of which are useful. Ultimately, mostly they're not. At what point do you type? Do you write, handwrite the whole Everything thing? Everything and then, yeah. Yeah, and I do it at the end. But I kind of mix and match. I might do a few chapters mm, or anything like that. I did start to blow cold in the whole publishing process, though. I did start to get a bit nauseous about it. Yeah. Yeah. I did, yeah. And uh, I've been, I don't know, is it because I've been doing it so long? Or Someone said to me, uh, I think what McCabe needs to do is write more like uh, John le Carre. And I thought, <laughs> after, all, after all this time, someone That's that I funny. respected would say that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I just thought... It kind of crushed me in a way. It's also the one of the stupidest It kind of made everything else. No, 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 no it doesn't matter whether it's stupid or not. If the person believed it, they believed it. But it kind of devalued everything because what they really meant was you don't have longevity. That's what they were saying. And that's a kind of a disappointment. I don't think that... I think what they're probably really saying is your style isn't fine, doesn't give us financial longevity. Yes, they are saying That's that, all right, but they're also saying that these books might have been all right, but we can't keep going. And, you know, there's a peculiar thing as you get older. Like, it's, it's very flattering when somebody like Nicole says, you know, that the books might have meant something to her. And I don't say that out of some kind of saccharine ego. There is a kind of thing where you think you vanish. That happens. As, 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 as the world changes, people do fade. You know, mm. it's not a question of your ego needing it. But you're not finished. You, you haven't finished your story. And even if it was only an audience of 10, it wouldn't matter. So it means a lot, that kind of thing. And never underestimate what it might mean to someone who's not, you know, in the scene or whatever. I mean, I had that experience myself years ago meeting an older author that I really admired, you know. And it meant an awful lot to me, and I said it to him. And what did John Le Carre say back to you? <laughs> he said, give it up, kid. <laughs> he said, give it up, kid. <laughs> We better, we better call it quits. Lads, thanks so much. Um, that was just so enjoyable. Um, can we give him a big boo of us? <laughs>